There was a father who had a son, hence the title father. It makes sense, right? And his father was really proud of his son. Every day he watched his boy grow, and every day his pride would swell and his love would expand. And so as his son grew up and his son got into school, his first day he's getting ready to go and enter the first grade. And he says, son, I am so proud of you. You're going to go and you're going to be in school and you're going to learn things and it's going to be amazing. I want to give you a gift. Um, what would you like? What can I get you? What is something that you would love to have? He's like, Dad, I, I'm good. I'm going to school. He said, no, it's all right. Ask for anything and I'll give you this. He's like, are you sure? He said, all right. So I said, well, if you really want to get me something, I want one of those little like, like beach sand pails full of pink polka-dotted golf balls. And his dad said, pink polka-dotted golf balls, why do you want that? He said, Dad, it's a secret. You said you wanted to get me anything. Is it okay if I have pink polka-dotted golf balls? And he said, all right, I guess if that's what you want. So he gave him a pail full of pink polka-dotted golf balls. And time went on, and the son went through grade school, and he excelled at everything. And graduation came. He's going to leave grade school. He's going to go into high school. And his dad said, I am so proud of you. I want to give you something, something that's important to you. What would be great for you as you go from grade school to high school? He says, it's really okay, Dad. You don't have to get me anything. I'm just glad you're here. He says, no, I want to give you a gift. He's like, well, what would be really helpful if you wanted to is going into high school, I would love to have a backpack full of pink polka-dotted golf balls. His dad said, why do you want these? He's like, Dad, I don't want to talk about it. I can't talk about it, but you said you wanted to get me something, so this is what I'd like. I said, all right. So he gave him a backpack full of pink polka-dotted golf balls. So he goes through high school, and he's graduating, top of his class. And his dad said, I can't express how proud I am of you. I want to get you something as you go off to college. Can I help you get a car, anything like that? And his son said, you know, I could use a pickup truck full of pink polka-dotted golf balls. And his dad just didn't even bother asking anymore because he doesn't understand. He knows his son isn't going to tell him. So the son goes through college, and he does exceptionally well. And while he's in college, he meets a nice girl. Um, they plan to get married. Their graduation and their wedding are happening in close succession. So his dad comes to him at the end of college and says, I want to get you something to celebrate the end of your education and the beginning of your life with this new person. He said, can I help you like, get a home or anything like that? He said, no, Dad, we, we've already put a down payment on a house. But if you wanted to, you could get us a swimming pool full of pink polka-dotted golf balls. And so he did. Well, a few years later, the son is in a car accident. And the father gets a phone call and says, your son's in the hospital and he's not doing well. He may not make it. You need to come and speak with him and say your piece. So he does. He goes to the hospital and he spends his time with his son and they, they talk and they express their love for each other. And he's sitting there and he's holding his son's hand. And he turns to his son and he's like, I gotta know something. 
what is it with all the pink polka dotted golf balls? And his son looks up at his dad and he says, you really want to know? And dad says, yeah, I really want to know. And so the son looked up at him and said, well, and then he died. The groaning and angry faces that I see right now are all the reward I need for today. I feel complete now. So why did I tell you that story? It's because, you guys are going to hate me so much. I was told that story by Jason Munez in the seventh grade, and I've despised him ever since. But I get some sort of joy back when I tell somebody else and I recognize the joy he had at that moment when he saw the murder in my face. So why did I tell you that? It's because I'm about to say something and it might make some people angry and unhappy. And I figured that before I do, I should tell a story to illustrate how something said can make people angry and unhappy by making them angry and unhappy. So that when I say the next thing that might also make them angry and unhappy, it hopefully won't be quite so shocking and as bad as the thing that was already said and they'll be okay with it. See, I did you a favor. So before I do, I want to ask you a favor. Don't stop listening. Stay with me to the end. If you're listening online, don't log off. Finish the sermon with me. There might still be something important there, and this might not be exactly as it seems. Is that fair? All right, here we go. I'm not here to preach to you the health message or the Sabbath. I'm not going to do that. It's not my job today. If you are here today or listening online, there's a good chance you're probably already an Adventist and you've already heard about the health message. You don't need me to tell you what it is. If you are not an Adventist or you just don't know what it is, it's not even close to the most important thing you can learn spiritually. Instead, first, learn about Jesus' desire for you. Get to know him and he will push you in whatever health direction he wishes for you or does not wish for you. And that's between you and him whenever he decides, if he decides. It's not my job today and probably not ever. If you are here today or listening online, and it doesn't matter if you're an Adventist or not, you already know something about the Sabbath and felt it was important enough to tune in today. For whatever reason, it was important for you personally, which means on some level the Spirit of God may have been talking to you and leading you to this time today. So continue listening to the Spirit of God. Go wherever and whenever the Spirit of God leads you as he decides. If he decides, it's just not my job today and maybe not ever. And if this makes you uncomfortable, angry, or otherwise unhappy, feel free to email me at murdoch at boulder.church. My name is Jay Murdoch. Um, tell him, me, sorry, me, um, all about it. Thank you. So why do I bother to say any of that to you? Because if you've read the verses today, you probably weren't even thinking that either of those topics were up for discussion today. But here's why. We speak to a largely, predominantly Adventist audience. And Adventists have a tendency to want to focus on that which makes them Adventist and talk about Adventisty things. 
and make them of prime importance. There are still Adventist Christians who like to put the Adventist before the Christian. And that's a problem sometimes, and it can be harmful, and it can even be dangerous. I had a professor in seminary. I will not mention his name because I do not want him to be burned at the stake. But the first day of class in Adventist church history, the first words out of his mouth that that semester were this. And this is a quote. I hate Adventists. I love Christians, and I love Christians who happen to be Adventist. But I hate Adventists. Now, I'd argue that maybe that was a little strong and harsh on his part, but I think his point is pretty clear. There are things that are fundamental to our being and our relationship with God and each other and our identity that have everything to do with Jesus and very little to do with our Adventistiness, because that's a real word. So instead, we're going to talk about those more fundamental things. The Jesus Manifesto, that's been the series we're talking about. The tremendously immeasurable love of God and how it needs to exist in any relationship and in every relationship. If this truth does not exist in a person's life, then no amount of Sabbath and no amount of health message will matter ever to anyone, ever. Not for them and not for you. With that said, let's proceed. So, as I was looking at the text that everybody was receiving for this series, excuse me, (coughs) I just choked, in this series, um, it felt like I got the short straw of Bible texts um, that can be often interpreted as difficult and or controversial, so fun. Again, Murdoch at boulder.church. So we're going to go to Colossians 3.18 through 4.1. These are the verses for this week. And I'm going to read them with an inflection that reflects how they have tended to be historically received by some people. All right? Here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh to them. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, don't provoke your children. They might get discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are put on you by your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. For whatever you do, work heartily as the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and no partiality. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Okay, so that's an exaggeration. It's probably not quite that bad. But it's not as far off as you might think. If we want these verses to make a little bit more sense, we need to go back and review some of the verses that came before it. Give us a little bit of context. Because those verses are super important for how we read the verses that we just read. So now I'm going to read those verses to you and see if it starts to change the way that we see what we just read. All right? This is Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, 
and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And it's the last verse that is a real true transition here, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's this section that gives us context because Paul is saying there's some things, there's some examples of things that will be directly impacted by the love that you have and receive, the compassion and kindness and humility that is within you as a chosen one of God. And then he gives some examples, and that's when we get into verses 18 through chapter 4. So knowing that he's giving examples of what happens when kindness, love, and humility are part of our character as God's chosen one, then he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now again, when we read that verse, there's so much historical baggage, and not even that far in the past, that gives us a certain reaction to this, especially if you're a woman. And so, I want to show you what came to my mind when I read this. And uh, Grandmaster Cody is going to put a couple uh, slides up for me. The first one, these are all ads from the 1950s in magazines. And I'm going to read a little bit of this one for you because it's hard to see. And it says this, and this is for Heinz Tomato Soup. Does your husband yawn at the table, the things women have to put up with? Most husbands nowadays have stopped beating their wives. But what can be more agonizing to a sensitive soul than a man's boredom at meals? Because that's more important than beating your wife. Yet, lady, there must be a reason... If you're cooking and not your conversation is monotonous, that's easily fixed. Start using soups more often. With lighter, more varied dishes to follow, Heinz makes 18 varieties. You can serve a different one every day for three weeks. Heinz cannot do math. Use them in your cooking, too, and strike some new flavors that will lift ordinary dishes out of the commonplace. I think I've read enough for that one. Are you starting to get a picture of some issues we have had in our society that still may exist today? Let's go to the next one. This ad's from 1952. That one was from 1950. This one's from 1952. If your husband ever finds out you're not store testing for fresher coffee. Actually, I don't even think I need to read more for that. That's pretty self-explanatory. Um, so the next one's from 1953. Can you read that? Is it always illegal to kill a woman? 
I'd read more, but I can't. I couldn't get a good copy, and it's all fuzzy. But honestly, we don't need to, because this is for Pitney Bowes postage stamp meters. I don't know what that has to do with anything. And then the last one, from 1959. It starts off, men are better than women. Indoors, women are useful, even pleasant. I'm, I'm reading it. I didn't write this. Please do not believe that this is my opinion on anything. I just, it's just a great example. <laughs> I can't even read it. Indoors, women are useful, even pleasant. Drum and climbing sweaters, no need to. These pullovers look great anywhere on the level. Entirely hand-fashioned of the purest, warmest, worsted in a bold, clear shaker stitch. I don't even know what half of those words mean. Genuine bone buttons. Um, and then, you know, they're tolerating the woman who's dangling off a cliff and probably going to die. So that's nice of them. So, how was that? Was that educational? Aren't you... Uh, Grateful for the good old days? Yeah. So when some people read this verse, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, there's a real context for people who take that in a very, very bad way. Can you see why that might be true? And what those were was just the 1950s. It went on into the 60s and sometimes the 70s and literally every year before that in the history of years. So, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. How does that make you feel? Now, whether or not, and let's break this down a little bit, whether or not Paul is saying to submit to your husbands because submitting to husbands is fitting to the Lord, or he's saying that your submission should be in a manner that is fitting to the Lord, really isn't the point here, although it's probably important to work that one out. What is is the context of this chapter. It's being part of God's beloved chosen, which demands compassion, kindness, and humility, which means that the submission to the husband is in this context. Submission then, the type of submission that comes from compassionate love. It's not done in resignation, but out of a desire that flows outward. Does that seem unreasonable? Now, men throughout history have absolutely loved this verse and others like it. And it feels harsh and unfair, especially considering how much spousal abuse was considered normal historically then and still in places now. But then he goes on to say this, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I would refer you back to those and then we'll move on. So wives have to submit but husbands have to love. Why the difference? The problem is how we're looking at the relationship of these two words and the baggage that they carry for us. Because let's be clear, all language has baggage. The type of submission spoken to of the wives is one steeped in love. But the thing is, love cannot exist without submission. When we love someone, we place them above us. And if we've placed somebody above us, we have placed ourselves Below them. What's the word for that? Submission. This is an important point because the Greek word used for submit is hupotasso. 
And it literally means to place under. So, when love is present, we will naturally want to place ourselves under the person that we are directing that love to. Paul, the clever genius that he is, used two different words to tell two different people to do the exact same thing. Because Paul understood his audience. Paul understood that a domineering male headship was the rule of the day, and unfortunately often still is. So instead of telling them that they are equal in God's eyes and should treat each other that way, which he has done in other places, he uses clever wordplay to get husbands to behave and lift their wives up and treat them well, and women to not let resentment that would very naturally result from being treated poorly pull them out of love. Paul may not have been able to instantly transform society, but he was a master at manipulating it. Now, I don't know if any of that makes you feel better about those verses or makes you feel worse. That'll be for you to wrestle with. But I want to illustrate, at least with those first two, and hopefully more so as we go through this, that the words that we read do not always convey the intent of the speaker and the writer. It's easy to take them and go anywhere with them, but if you dig a little deeper and you look a little farther in, you realize that maybe it's not what we thought. And that affects the way that we use this information. So verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now this is the one that the parents love, right? They could have been upset with the first one, but they're totally fine with this one. And to be fair, it's important, kids, you should listen to your parents. Because kids, you do not know everything. Parents also don't know everything, but they've got a huge head start on not knowing everything. So they know a little bit more in their not knowing. Listen to them. You might learn something. And then when you get to be them, you'll realize what that meant. And then you'll be telling other kids to do what they're told and listen to their parents. It's the great cycle. It really is. Yeah. Sorry, that wasn't the cue, by the way, just so we're clear. Um, but here's the thing. The kids will ask the question, and they'll argue, but what if my parent asked me to do something super evil, like wear white after Labor Day or put ketchup on hot dogs, or, you know, something actually horrible or something like that? By the way, true story, um, if you go into Chicago and order a hot dog, there are some hot dog places where if you ask for ketchup, they will ask you to leave. That is the truth. They actually have signs. If you request this, you will be asked to leave. We will refuse to serve you. I'm just saying. Eat a hot dog right. But their question's valid, though. What if your parent wants you to do something that's truly evil? We can go through history and find where this has been true. So should you obey? Well, let's go back to the Greek again. The word obey, hupakuo, literally translates as to listen under. It's a form of respect. It means you're listening as though the person speaking does so with some authority. Um, it's a type of submission. It's a way of treating someone with respect. And the other piece is, though, it applies to everyone. Um, should any authoritative voice be primary or secondary to God? So if somebody, a parent, tells you to do something evil, your primary responsibility is to God, and God tends to tell us to not do evil things. So that's a pretty straightforward logic equation. 
Now, let me back up for a second. I realize this is all super obvious to you all. You did not need me to explain that to you. It's an unnecessary point to make, but it does illustrate that we should never just take single verses out of context. We could do something horrible just because the Bible said in one place to do a thing. And you might look at yourself and go, yeah, but I would never do that. And maybe you wouldn't. But there's lots of people who we never thought would do that, and they do. So it's worth repeating, even if it seems obvious. Because people will look for ways to use the Bible to support every act of racism and sexism and every type of abuse, just because it makes what they want easier. So don't do that. I'd appreciate it. And it's literally the reason that Paul is writing these things. Because people were acting out of selfishness and an evil desire and justified it through culture and scripture. Have you ever seen that happen today? Paul is telling us that if we shift our motive, our actions will fall into a loving harmony as they relate to the people around us. Now that seems more desirable to me. So let's talk about fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, Paul is just seeking to find balance. He's unbalancing, he's balancing an unbalanced social equation. Children need to listen to their parents. This does not give parents the right to treat their children badly. And I want to be really clear on this. I may not be a parent, um, and being a youth pastor and a teacher doesn't give me the same connection to kids that it does with a parent. But I want to say this really clear because it's something that I feel is really important. If you believe that your parental authority gives you the right to treat your children harshly and abusively, there's something wrong with you. You're doing bad things and you should stop. You should take a close, hard look at who you are and what you do. If you agree with that, you're not insulted in any way by that statement. If you are insulted by that statement, maybe you should be taking a look at things. Because I think Jesus said something about what happens when we treat children poorly, something about drowning them in the ocean or something like that. He was pretty firm about it too. So again, don't do that. Do better. All right, well that was dark. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service and people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Three points I want to make here. Point number one, a bondservant. They were typically someone who owed someone a debt. They didn't have the money to pay it off, and so they either offered to work off this debt as a bondservant, or they were conscripted to work off that debt by the one that they owed. It was not the same thing as being a slave, although it did often result in the same sort of reality. Depending on whether or not that master was an honest, just person or a terrible human being. So in theory, they could work off that debt and be free again. 
they really weren't captive. They came and went as they wanted to. They had their lives. They had their homes. It was not all that different than working a job now, but it was a little different. Um, it could be pretty cruel. So that's point number one. Point number two, Paul is not condoning slavery or servitude. He simply is promoting a level of character befitting one who is of God's family to have in any and every situation. If we have the love of Christ in us, then our circumstance will not dictate our character. I want to say that again. If the love of God is in us, our circumstance will not dictate our character. And it's easy to lose sight of that. And it feels just when we lose sight of that. But it's not an excuse. Point number three. Conversely, Paul is not saying that there isn't a good time to stand up against those who mistreat and subjugate. It's just not his point here. His point is a more fundamental point to who we are. There is no point in revolutionizing a society if you're not capable of standing within a society. Did you follow me on that? If we aren't capable of standing and living in a society in a way of good character, then revolutionizing that society by that person is completely useless. If that happens, all we do is shuffle around who the abuser is. If the person who's down below wants to do a revolution and their character isn't great, all they're going to do is shift the power balance and they'll still be the abuser when they get to the top. We've changed nothing if we cannot be people who can live where we are. That is Paul's point. Masters, we're almost there. Are you getting why no one likes to preach on this? This is not, this is not what I would choose. And yet, it's super important. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this reminds me of an old joke that probably 99% of us heard as kids. If you're part of that 1% who didn't, well, let me introduce you. There was four people on a plane, a pilot, a mega business owner, master of industry, an old monk, and a Girl Scout. And while the plane is flying, the engines quit, the pilot cannot get the plane started again, and it's going to crash. They have to abandon the plane, but the pilot discovers they've only put three parachutes on the plane, they've got four people. Well, before they can even figure out how to work that, the master of industry business mega dude grabs the first parachute he can see and says, I am way too important to go down with this plane. I have people that depend on me, and I'm a big deal, and he just jumps. Well, the pilot, and the old monk start discussing among themselves in the short time they have which one of them is going to stay because the pilot says, this is my plane. It's my responsibility to make sure that everyone survives the trip. The monk says, I'm an old man and I am more than at peace with what comes next for me. But while they're arguing, the Girl Scout says, it's all right, we've got enough parachutes. Um, the uh, master of industry took my backpack. I don't want to say karma, but... So the master problem is the inverse of the bondservant problem. 
And Paul doesn't really pull his punches here. He doesn't bother to elaborate because his point is real clear. Everybody who heard him understood what he was saying. If you have power and authority over another for any reason and you abuse that power and that person, you will get yours. That's pretty clear. Not only will you get it, you'll be profoundly displeased with what that looks like. Because as he said, there is no partiality. Being a big deal doesn't give you any leg up. We either all conduct ourselves with character or we don't. Everything else is details. And this is the beauty of Paul's symmetry in this discourse. He likes to show both sides of an equation and through all of this, he shows that love brings power, I'm sorry, love brings balance to the disparity of power. This is what he's going for. Whether you're the wife or the husband, the love brings balance. Whether you're the child or the parent, the love brings balance. Whether you are the bondservant or the master, it is the love that brings balance. Without that love, there is no balance. But love itself has a balance. Just as love is the power that brings compassionate kindness and humility to any relationship, love is also the power that brings true justice to an abused disparity. Love is always the balance. And this brings us full circle. Ask Jared, he'll explain. Because it's easier to be inflammatory and contrary out of a balance and out of balance with the people around us. Let me say that again because I did not read that well. And I'm reading a lot today because I wanted to choose my words appropriately. My brain is getting old and my eyes are getting worse. I got to do it right. It is easier to be inflammatory and contrary and out of balance with the people around us than it is to live in balanced love. Have you experienced that? Is it easier just to get angry than it is to conduct yourself better? I know it's true for me. It's kind of like that entire intro preface about the health message in the Sabbath that I used. That was completely unnecessary. And all of it was guaranteed to bring someone unhappiness and cause an inflammatory response. I did not need to say any of that. It was completely unnecessary. I could have said a dozen other things that would have done the same thing, even though I believe every word of it. It's easier to stand against something than it is to stand for something. And it's easier to stand against someone than it is to stand with someone. Paul has so many themes in his writings, but one of them is this constant attempt to show that two opposing groups do not have to live in opposition. It's easier to stand against than it is to stand with. And he wants us to grasp that. People don't have to live at odds with each other. We cannot stand in Christ and at the same time stand against everyone we disagree with. And there's a difference between standing against an idea and standing against a life. Those are not the same. If we can't stand with the people in our society, then we are not qualified to revolutionize the people of our society. We can accept, or can we accept, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free, young or old, Democrat or Republican, 
citizen or immigrant, gay or straight, black or white? Can we accept that they are all one in God's sight? That we are all one in God's sight. And that if God sees them as one, then maybe we should too. Because if I cannot say that I love God, I'm sorry, because I cannot say that I love God and still hate my brother. John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not... Oh my goodness, my eyes are so bad today. I apologize. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not... He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or his wife or her husband or their child or their parents or their employee or their boss. How we treat anyone says something about our love. Can we love someone else the way we ourselves want to be loved? Do you want to be stood with or do you want to be stood against? How balanced is your love equation? And I personally want more loving connectedness and less pink polka dotted golf balls. How about you?